please, to Ephesians chapter number 4. Ephesians chapter number four had a, we were having a bit of a conversation before the choir came in about Christmas and Christmas colors and I thought, I, I'm, I'm in trouble because I don't have a Christmas message. It's just way too far in advance for me to, to be that oriented preaching to Christmas. But, but the reality is that the subject matter, and not just of this message, but of what we've been dealing with broadly, the subject matter of forgiveness is really kind of at the heart of what Christmas is. Um, you know, it's, we love, we love our family like you love yours, and we love the times together with our families, and some of us who will remain nameless, Ken Largent, <clears throat> um, really love Christmas cookies. <clears throat> um, please don't make me any, please, please don't make me any, but I love Christmas cookies and Christmas pastries, and Christmas turkey, not, not turkeys, not big turkey guy, but, um, but, but, but Christmas really isn't about those things. That's, that may be true when we talk about Christmas as a cultural event, which is fine. Um, but when we talk about Christmas from a Christian perspective, uh, it is about the way that God has obtained the forgiveness, not just of one person, but of many people. And all of those people that he has saved have this in common. <laughs> they are sinners. And that sin needs to be forgiven. So let's go ahead and stand, please. I want to begin this morning in verse number 17 of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4.17, This I say therefore, and testify in the Lord, that henceforth ye walk not as other, that, hence, that ye henceforth, I'm sorry, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness, Lusts is the idea. To work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. That ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man. Which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that she put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, let every man speak every, speak every man truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Be therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. And let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us. I pray first of all that we would understand that our very own personal sins need to be forgiven and that we would look to Christ who is the only one able to cleanse us of the offense and guilt of our sin. And then I pray that you would help us to understand 
your instructions as we deal with other people who are also sinners. And I pray that we would take this as seriously and as somberly as you do. And I pray this for us in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may, of course, be seated. When the subject matter of forgiveness comes up, folks, it it almost always comes up at some point in time with a how. How do I forgive somebody when my feelings are so wounded, my spirit is so broken, the grief is so great? And I really am not trying to ignore that. I, I want to try and touch upon that. But before we can get to those kinds of issues or those kinds of questions, which I do think the Bible provides some guidance for, right? So I'm not going to, I have no intention of standing up here and trying to give you a psychological lecture. The Bible deals with the subject matter of forgiveness a little bit more tangibly. The reality, folks, is that our hearts and our minds and our feelings all by themselves really just don't do theology well. They, they will not bring us to God's position, but will frequently take us away from God's position. And there are a couple of major passages. This is one. We're going to deal with another one in the Gospels at a future date that orient us around the foundation of forgiveness. All of our interpersonal relationships, if we could just sit the Lord Jesus Christ down and ask him questions about forgiveness and who should be forgiven and under what terms and what would that look like and what would that entail, we would know, folks, we know that he is always going to take us back to his forgiveness of us, that is the foundation of all. And so with that, let's turn our attention this morning to just a portion of what we have read. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 are one major section. The book of Colossians 1 and 2 is another major section that explains to us what we are congregationally as God's people. We are his church. We are his called out people. And this is his work. It is his idea. It is his will. It is his activity that it has made it so. And we are constituted then collectively. All who are true believers in Christ are constituted into his church. Beginning then in what to us is chapter number 4. God begins to turn his attention to what that looks like. What does that, what does that mean for me? Right here I am, and in my case, I'm 20 years old. I've been married six months. Grew up in a completely unreligious home. I had no religious background, really none whatsoever. I was a Baptist by name. Back in the days when I was in elementary school, it wasn't uncommon for the school to ask what denomination you were. And my parents told me, tell them you're Baptist. Didn't know what a Baptist was. Didn't know what a Baptist church was. But I was a Baptist. One of the upsides to that, by the way, is that I didn't come with any of the religious baggage that so many other people bring when they get saved. I had no religion. My, my religion was me. The end. Get saved. Somebody tells me about Christ and come to faith in Christ. Just about 21 years of age. What does that mean? I got saved. What does that mean? And it means a lot of things. It means things with reference to my position, my my fundamental relationship with God, which I didn't even realize that I had. Never thought about God. Didn't bother him. He wouldn't bother me. That was a great way to live. And uh, not, not the way that anybody really gets to live, but it sounded pretty good. It was uh, my theology. and <clears throat> But over the course of time, you find out that this brings you, of course, into God's family. And you're one of his children. And you're not the only one. 
right? We're not, we're not only children. We're not the only child in the family. There are many children in the family. And from a variety of backgrounds and languages and cultures and over the course of many times, God has brought his people together. And what we have in common is that we all needed a Savior and the only one who's adequate is Christ. Now, how am I going to think about you and how are you going to think about me? And good old Americanism is, it doesn't matter. I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian in my terms, in my way, my time. And in the 21st century, I don't even need really to go to church because I can just listen to somebody preach online and fill my head with Bible knowledge and I'm good. The Bible would reject that, and, but that's neither here nor there for the purposes of this message. We are here. And we know each other. And one of the problems with hanging around people that you know is that it doesn't take long to find out that there's a lot to not like about the people that you know. Now what? Now what? Well, we're not going to deal with it, but in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, Paul emphasizes the fact that there is only one body. There's only one true body, the body of Christ, the church. And therefore, it is, whether it wishes to be or not, unified. It does not always exist in unity, to play with the words, but it is unified. There's one body. And that our obligation is to live not only recognizing that we are in that body, but to live in a certain way with reference to that body. And in verses 17 through 32, which takes us through the end of chapter 4, Paul emphasizes the distinctiveness of the body from the world. There is one body that is is unified, verses 1 through 16, and that body is not the world, verses 17 through 32. Once upon a time then, verses 17 through 24, before we were brought into the one body, We walked after our own desires. We thought about what we wanted to do. And we thought about what we wanted to say. And we thought about how we wanted to live. And we acted the way we wanted to act. Now there are obviously constraints upon that. Our parents may have imposed some constraints. Our employer may have imposed some constraints. Twitter and Facebook may have imposed some constraints. But... The engine that drove us was the desire to think about things the way we wanted, to respond to things the way that we wanted, to say the things that we wanted to say. But that is not what we have been taught by Christ. Once upon a time, before we were saved, that's how we lived. Now, you might have gotten saved at 5, and you might get saved at 15, and you might get saved at 25, and you might get saved at 50. But up until that moment, that was how you lived. Governed by your own appetites. But that is not what Christ teaches us. And if we have learned Christ, then there is something different to do. And so in verse number 24, we are to put off Put on the new man, I'm sorry, put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. And if I could just make this observation, folks, true holiness, there usually the word holiness refers to the absence of sin. God is holy, there's no sin. This word is a translation of a different word. It's actually a word that refers to consecration. What do consecrated, how do consecrated Christians act? If you were really consecrated to the Lord, if you were really dedicated to the Lord, if that really defined you, and we have Some definitions, by the way, if I can just pause for a moment. We have some of our own definitions about what defines consecrated Christians. If we pack our teenagers up and send them off to camp, consecrated Christians may look like going to the mission field or surrendering for vocational ministry. 
And God has people he wants on the mission field, and God has people he wants on vocational ministry. But are those the only consecrated people? Or are the consecrated people the people who go to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night? And I'm a big fan of those who go to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I spend the vast majority of my week preparing to speak to the people who are there. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And are the truly consecrated people the people who tithe all that they get? And I'm a big fan of tithing. I think you ought to do it. I think God is honored when you do it. And let's be realistic, right? Everything that goes on in this world runs by money, including the local church. Now, I'm not going to argue that those things are not dimensions of consecration. I just want to point out to you that true consecration goes beyond those things. In other words... It is possible, folks, for us to write large checks to the church and be in every one of the services and not be truly consecrated according to Ephesians 4. And before we get to impose our definitions of true consecration upon the text, we need to understand what God's definitions of true consecration are. And here are some of them. Verse number 25, tell the truth and don't tell lies. That's true consecration. Just to making it a commitment to tell the truth. To just be truthful to all people about all things at all times. That is an act of consecration. True holiness. Put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness, there's right conduct, there's the absence of sin, and true consecration. I'm consecrated to the Lord. I'm going to tell the truth about the situation. True consecration is this, verses 26 and 27. Managing our anger righteously. There's true consecration. Now, not all of us are equally angry by disposition and not all of us are equally angry by the same things. I am generally not an angry person until I get behind the wheel of a car. And then... I think often of John MacArthur's great quote, if you could lose your salvation, you would. Manage your anger righteously. Be angry. Don't sin. Don't let the sun go down in your wrath. Don't give place to the devil. That's consecration. Consecrated Christians are dedicating themselves to telling the truth. They're endeavoring to look at everything as truthfully as it can be. And in all situations, folks, and you know, all situations come with 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 some dimension. I don't mean all, I mean the Bible is factual and states what it states, but none of us see the same exact events through the same exact lens. But we are endeavoring to be truthful. And we are endeavoring to manage our anger biblically. True consecration, 428, let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. That genuine consecration is putting an end to stealing, putting a start to working. If that describes you, let him that stole steal no more. Paul's not suggesting everybody was a thief. But if you were then put an end to it and work. But don't work to pursue the American dream. That's not true consecration either. I'm going to work hard so I can be rich, retire when I'm 40. Rather let him labor working with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. Work for spiritual purposes. True consecration. These are some of the manifestations, folks, of what really dedicated Christians are. They go to church, of course they do. They give money, of course they do. They read their Bibles and have their devotions, of course they do. They tell the truth. They work at their anger. They work with a God-given purpose in mind, not just an accumulation purpose in mind. 
And then verses 29 through 32, which I'm going to deal with kind of as a unit because they're all about words. They're all about words. The words we speak and the way in which we speak them. God tells the truth. He doesn't lie. God's anger is always under control, but he always has anger. God is a worker. Jesus said, my father worketh hitherto and I work. My father has always been working and I have always been working. And God speaks. And God speaks. God is a talker. So in the way we tell the truth, and in the way we work, and in the way we manage our anger, and in the way we use all of these words in verses 29 through 32, we are to be a follower. You probably have a note, or perhaps your translation just translates it this way. We are to be imitating God. Imitating God. Because remember, I put on the new man. I used to just be just the old man, and I did what appealed to me after my own lust. If this made me mad, I responded in a way that I thought was right. If I wanted something, I went in the pursuit of that something because I don't answer to anybody but me. But now I'm in the family of God and God has lots of children, but there's only one father and we are to be an imitator of him. In working through this, I came across a message by Pastor Mark Minnick of Mount Calvary Baptist Church who, in the introduction to his message, provided the congregation five reasons why sins of the tongue are so dangerous and damaging to an assembly. He said, number one, because they are more prevalent than other sins. Adultery is devastating to an assembly, but it doesn't happen nearly as often as sins of the word. He said, secondly, they are dangerous and deadly to an assembly because they are so subtle. So many words are spoken and so many words are heard in the course of any given day. He said, thirdly, they are dangerous and, defend, and, they are dangerous and damaging because they are so defensible. We have so many excuses for the words we use. So many justifications for the things we say and the way in which we say them. I didn't mean it, I was just mad. Oh, but consecrated Christians are managing their anger properly. You want to put a sharp point on it. And I hope you know that I would never say anything to you as if I'm preaching from the position of perfection. He said, fourthly, words, words of, or sins of speech... Sins of the tongue are dangerous and damaging because they are so much less likely to be addressed or confessed. If a church ignored the fact that the pastor embezzled a million dollars, that would be national news. But what might the pastor say in private conversation that would just be blown off as just talking? Just venting. And finally, he said they are damaging and dangerous because they are so very personal in nature. We all learn the little ditty as children, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, but we never believe them for a moment. The Bible says death and life are in the power of the tongue. So let me just give you broadly what I would suggest in verses 29 through 32 are a broad orientation to all the things that Paul says. Number one, we are oriented, first of all, around something we should not do, which is grieve God's spirit. 
So all of those words and the way they pertain, one of the major takeaways from those words is that we do not do anything that would grieve God's spirit. And secondly then, our second orientation, our second takeaway from the text is that we would imitate God's grace. Those are the two orientations of the passage. Do not grieve God's spirit, but do in fact imitate God's grace. So let's look at them along those lines. First of all, because, because of God's indwelling spirit. We are to avoid grieving him in the words we say and the attitudes with which we say them. Very early in the book of Ephesians, when Paul is talking to us about what the church is, he points out in this beautiful poetic expression in the first part of the chapter that the church is the culmination of the work of the heavenly father and the crucified son and the indwelling spirit who is given to us as the earnest of our salvation. Last week I pointed out to you as we worked our way through several of the sermon passages in the book of Acts that the forgiveness of sins was tied to the reception of the Spirit. If God will forgive your sins, if you will repent and be forgiven, God will give to you His Spirit. And so, folks, God does not live, right there is a sense in the unbelieving world, outside of the church, and I don't mean the building, outside of the community of the church, God is present, but He does not live in those who do not believe in Him. But when we got saved, God moved in. And we have then an indwelling spirit. And in fact, folks, the Bible is very clear that it is the indwelling spirit who is the genuine, true, true testimony of salvation. It is not our profession. It is His indwelling in us. Romans 8, 9, you're not in the flesh. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his, period. End of the conversation. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. That's what Paul said to the Romans in Romans chapter 8. He said to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians thirteen five. Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith, prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. But I trust ye shall know that we are not reprobates. So true believers have, folks, the indwelling Spirit of Christ. And when he is described in Ephesians chapter 1 as our seal, seal with the, until the day of salvation, he is the seal. It's not like Paul's not arguing in Ephesians 1 that the Holy Spirit has this big roll of stickers that when you got saved, he put one on you, there's your seal, but that he himself is the seal, the down payment, so to speak. And here's the point, I think, when we take it into Ephesians chapter 4. Where now is God going to go? If God lives in your heart, When you and I are committing any sin, where is he going to go? And of course the answer to that is there is no place for him to go. He is the indwelling spirit. So that it is not possible, and of course I realize that this is true for lost people, but folks it's really different. The Bible presents it in a different light. So so here's the situation. If I am sinning with my mouth, and that's the framework that we're dealing with, so we'll confund. If I'm sinning with my mouth, there's, there's no way for God to get away from those words. And there's no way for God to get away from the spirit behind those words. So that if my words are corrupt, verse number 29, let no corrupt communication, if they are rotten, like rotten fruit. 
like you pick up a package of strawberries from the grocery store in the hopes that they are sweet and instead they taste like bare aspirin. Or if we are bitter, because that's really what I should have used it there. Let no corrupt communication, like, a, like an overly ripe banana or a rotten apple, let all bitterness, like an aspirin-tasting strawberry. Or if our wrath and anger is unresolved, verse number 26, wrath and passion, the rage that we have against somebody for what they have done. There really is a progression to this, folks. You can see how it goes. right? Let no corrupt communication out of your, proceed out of your mouth. Grieve not the Holy Spirit whereby you're sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, bitterness and wrath and anger. And what do you get when you combine bitterness and wrath and anger in the human heart? You get clamor. You get loud words, loud accusations, raised voices telling you how mad they are how hurt they are, clamor. So that it is no surprise that what is also on the table, so to speak, is blasphemy, evil speaking, bitterness, wrath, anger, loud voices, nasty words, evil talking. talking badly about their character, their conduct, their intent. And no surprise then that this is all accompanied by malice, that summary word of ill will and ill feeling. Just mad at you and it's you and you. And Paul tells us then to be put away from us. That they are to be put away. And he's using there, I I mentioned in Sunday school this morning, that the story of the fall is told in some ways very visually by the undressed condition of Adam and Eve and their shame at finding themselves. So here is another visual word as if you could... Take all of those feelings in those words, folks, of verse number 29, the the corrupt communication and the bitterness and the wrath and the anger and the clamor as if they were commodities that you could put on a boat and set the boat a sail. Put them away. And by the way, I would point out to you that biblically suppressing them and pretending that they're not there is not the solution, and practically it's never the solution. But folks, I would point out to you that as the Bible always does, because God can really do nothing else, He orients all of those things towards Himself. I mean, the world might pose the, put the question this way, look, you've, you've done me wrong. Why shouldn't I scream at you? Why shouldn't I make obscene gestures at you? Why shouldn't I trash talk you? Why shouldn't I be mad at you? You deserve it. But the orientation for those of us in the community of the church is that all of those things are very grievous to God. And what it means is simply this, folks. They just make God sad. He's sad. I mean, that's, that's the word. So here am I in my anger and my wrath and my bitterness and my loud words that are making accusations and insulting. And here is the Lord who has no place to go. He's just sad. Sad. So here is a true believer 
because that is the context, right? We're all in this community. Here is a true believer who has a genuine hurt. Right? The wound is legitimate where that's not up for debate, right? And how do we know that's not up for debate? Because we're all truth-telling. Right? We're not fabricating things. We're all telling the truth. One of the Puritans, I don't know his name, one of the Puritans said, I thought this was a great statement, we nurse our wrath to keep it warm. Ouch. Right? And you know, folks, it's just possible. It's, it's just possible I mean, just think through it and indulge me the point theoretically. If a good and righteous God who we're about to describe his grace in a moment cannot escape me when I am bitter and angry and vociferous and loud and ugly in those words, if he cannot go anywhere when I'm doing that and he is sad, then perhaps a lot of what, I, what we might call the emotional baggage that is attached to the wound isn't really attached to the wound, but is the consequence of my God being very unhappy at the moment. Maybe that's it. Maybe he's upset. Maybe I thought it was just you and me, but it isn't. Here's a very real scenario that is being portrayed, folks, and we just need to be careful that we understand this, and that is that If I am not careful when I am the victim, I will very easily cross over into becoming a perpetrator in my own right. God never says to us, folks, you know what? You have the right to be mad. Just let it go. He just doesn't do that. I can't come up with a scenario in my mind in which I can be sinfully angry and express that sinful anger through ugly, accusatory, loud words that make God unhappy and find myself then to be happy. I don't know how to do that. So it might just be, folks, that we are enduring a twofold misery, the misery of the wound and the misery that we have brought upon ourselves from our reaction to the wound. So because of God's indwelling spirit, we are oriented then to be mindful not to grieve him, to make him sad. And Paul does not expand upon it. He doesn't elaborate upon it. He doesn't list five consequences of making the Spirit of the Lord angry. He just points out that these are things that happen. And it happens again, folks, all the way back up line. If I can't tell the truth, God is unhappy. If I don't manage my anger, God is unhappy. If I'm lazy or if I have a great work ethic but I work only for me and my gain, God is unhappy. Now, we all know the cliche, and I appreciate, I really do appreciate, because I don't use the cliche, I appreciate that so many ladies find objection to it, happy wife, happy life. But let me just tell you something, folks. It's not possible to have an unhappy God living within you and to be a happy person. Not going to happen. So because of God's indwelling spirit, our orientation is away from grieving Him. Secondly, Because of God's amazing grace, our response is to be different. And again, folks, if we we are grounded only in ourselves and the wound that we have received, then we are going to respond differently than if we are oriented to the grace we have received. We can spend our entire lives being about the wounds, or we can spend them being about the grace. 
So back to verse number 29. Let no corrupt communication, no rotten words come out of your mouth. But that which is good. And how do I know that it's good? Because it is intended to build. Whereas I think we would all by default understand, folks, that angry words spoke loudly and blasphemously are not really designed to build. I hate your guts! But I mean it in the best possible way. They have edification, the building of the other and their purpose. Look, folks, we'll get to this, but Matthew 18 deals with the entirety of Matthew chapter 18, deals with the community, so to speak, of God's people. And here's the word God begins, right? We're all children. We come in as children. We are children. We have a father. You know when you have have a room full of children? Conflict. So we're going to transition in Matthew 18 into conflict. Let's talk about conflict. And what is the undergirding principle that governs conflict in children? Forgiveness. That's the end of Matthew 18. That's the biggest part of Matthew 18. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. So that being oriented towards God's grace, which we will come to, Right? My words are to be not loud, not angry, not malicious, not hurtful, but instructive. So that those who are on the receiving end, if I can, trend, if I can, if I can comment as I'm reading, that it may minister grace unto the hearers, so that those who are on the receiving end are built for their good, not crushed for their bad. Now I think, folks, we all understand That's very difficult to do at times. But I would just point out, folks, that the text, right? The text has its its intention controlling me as the speaker. Hearers, Hearers don't always respond that way. Hearers don't always hear that. But that's, that's not the point here. God lives in me. He knows everything. Am I trying to help with my words? Or am I just expressing my own personal hurt and anger? Oriented towards grace. And I would just point out to you folks that there is absolutely no biblical prohibition against confronting wrongdoing. And in fact, the Bible has much to say, much of it that we don't like, that we are obligated at times to confront wrongdoing. But there's a world of difference between trying to help somebody and just simply trying to hurt them. Down to verse number 32. Right? Oriented toward God's grace, good words, good use, Grace to those on the receiving end. Be kind. Be kind. And the idea here, folks, what does it mean to be kind? Well, it means, it literally means to be easy on people. That is exactly the way it's translated in Matthew 11.30 when Jesus said, my yoke is easy. We are to be easy on people. Something that harsh, loud, ugly, angry, hateful words are not. And again, I would just, right? I don't need to prove this to you. You know this out of the depth of your heart. But I would bet most of us could go back many years and recover events of harsh words that have been spoken to us. We don't forget them. You just don't forget them. Go easy on people. Be tender-hearted. Be kind one to another. Tender-hearted. The only other place that this word is found in the New Testament is 1 Peter 3.8 where it is translated pitiful. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Be full of pity. Be tender-hearted. Forgiving one another. And here is really where I've anchored the idea of grace because the word forgiving here is really the word grace. To do this out of grace. The verb form of the word grace. 
And I just got to point this out, folks. I just, I, re- I just, just feel compelled to point this out to you. And I do this always with the greatest reluctance for our beloved King James Bible, but here's what Paul actually said at the end of verse number 32. And we want to make sure that we understand it that way. Even as God in Christ forgave you. God did, if you just go back to Ephesians 1, folks, and just read Ephesians 1, God did not forgive us because the son asked him to. Dad, will you please just forgive those people? Okay, I'll do it for you. Ephesians very 1 is very clear that the whole idea began with the father himself. How did the father forgive us? In Christ. And he did this graciously. Do we understand the purpose of grace? Nobody deserved it. Nobody merited it. Nobody earned it. It was grace. It came out of the giver. It came out of the one who was giving, not the one. Right? We look at people, what do they deserve? Um, you know, if we would just would be willing to be truthful, none of us deserve anything good. So that our graciousness, folks, to go back to verse number 32, forgiving, being gracious, verb form of grace, be gracious one to another, even as God, for Christ's sake, forgave you. See, it all, it all, comes, it all comes back, right? I mean, we can talk about the psychology of forgiveness, folks. I, I really think I, there are some things in the Bible that, that we can discover that are very helpful in orienting our attitudes and the way we think. But if we cannot anchor the way we treat and talk about other people to the fact that God has forgiven us, it's not about whether God forgave them. It's about the fact that God forgave us. There's the the foundation point. I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. Okay, now, let that color how I talk to you and think about you. But by default, folks, we tend to start with, you don't deserve to be forgiven. But that is not where the Bible, that's not where the Bible orients us As believers, we are oriented to the fact that we have received grace. We give it because we have received it. And so then, verse number 1 of chapter 5, imitate God. The God of all grace. The God who is the source of grace. The God who gives grace freely. So let me just... Conclude by some summarizing, typical summarizing, making a couple points of application. First of all, folks, this is not a passage. No amount of forgiveness. God's forgiveness of you and God's forgiveness of me has no dimension of ignoring the fact that I'm a sinner. God never saved anybody by looking at them and going, you know what, not that big of a deal. It's a huge deal. So this is not a passage that is instructing us to ignore or suppress the realities that we perhaps have been wronged, that we have experienced injustices at the hands of God's people. And as I've mentioned, the Bible insists upon many things. For instance, right here in this passage, Ephesians 4, don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. Right? Don't let these things fester. There's biblical instruction. Deal with them. Address them. And I would argue, folks, that the entire Matthew 18 protocol has these kinds of injuries. Of course, they begin with personal matters, right, that are in the pursuit of resolution. So this is not a path, right? So, so God doesn't come to us in Ephesians chapter 4 or any passage, right? Well, with a couple of exceptions, right? There are some instances, right, where we're told that love covers a multitude of sins. There are some things that we can categorize and go, you know what? Not worth saying anything about. 
Good brother, bad day, bad moment, put it aside. But that's not everything. That's not everything. And so God has an entire set of instructions for us. Hebrews Hebrews 13, exhort, or Hebrews 10, exhort one another daily to do good. 1 Thessalonians, admonish one another. Secondly, be very careful. Be very careful because we, in being offended, can very quickly become the offender and we can offend the Lord. And you just have to wonder, folks, you just have to wonder how much of the misery of God's people is the result not of the fact that they have been wounded by another, but of the fact that they have become angry and bitter and their God is grieved with them. He is saddened by their conduct. Thirdly, be realistic. Nobody, nobody speaks the way that verse number 30 is, verse number 31 is discussing, folks, if their feelings are really not bent that way. Perhaps I need the modern day disclaimer. Scripted, scripted television shows notwithstanding. Script says, be mad at you. Okay, I will be mad at you. But we speak that way, folks, out of very real feelings. In other words, right, I don't want to dismiss this. I don't want to just come to us and, as your pastor, talk to you theoretically and academically and coldly and mechanically about the subject matter of forgiveness. One of the problems that we face is that we are real human beings with real feelings. And so our anger is very real and our hurts are very real, but our words are very real and our God is very real. And we need to be realistic about this. And, and I think that we make a mistake in somehow assuming, if we think of it at all, that this is somehow easy for God or simple for him. As if he is some kind of just gigantic invisible magician who waved his invisible wand in. That is, that is really not the way the Bible presents it. His anger was real. The grievances were real. The wrath that he poured out upon his son was real so that we might experience real grace. So God God acknowledges the fact that we are emotional beings who are highly charged emotionally, and that's what he's talking to. He is saying, look, I know how you are in your thoughts and your feelings and in your heart, but they can't dominate what you do if I live inside. So oriented towards not grieving our indwelling spirit and oriented towards honoring and imitating the grace of God. Let's pray.